Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our Christmas series today, A Vision for Christmas, let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7, verses 9 to 17, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Christmas, God's Sign. When the Apostle Matthew tells the story of Christmas, he begins by saying, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And then Matthew recounts that while his mother was betrothed to Joseph before they came together, and while Mary was a virgin, Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And then having described that drama, Matthew says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, of course, that's a reference to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Matthew is saying that when Mary the Virgin conceived, not by a man, but by the Holy Spirit, an ancient prophecy just came into fruition. And says Matthew, the virgin conception tells us because of that ancient prophecy that in no uncertain terms, we now know that God is with us. That is, hearing of a virgin conceiving ought to give us hope, even certainty, that the great creator has committed himself to remaining with the human race and offering forgiveness for our sins. Well, how so? You know, in our culture, we have certain signs that are designed to represent commitment. Marriage rings are supposed to do that. Official signed documents do that. Swearing of an oath does that. But here God says, the virgin conception is a sign that I will keep my promise. How so? You know, we've been discussing Isaiah's Christmas. Although Isaiah lived over 700 years before the coming of Jesus, what he saw had a great bearing on what we see in Christmas today. We've been looking at Isaiah chapter 7, and as we've seen, the chapter represents a drama. Two kings are, are mentioned as protagonists. The first is Rezin, king of Syria, and the second is Pekah, the king of Israel with its capital in Ephraim. The events described in Isaiah 7 would have happened between 735 to 732 BC, and that date is significant. We know from history that at this time, a new and awesome, terrifying power had arisen in the Middle East, a new empire. It was the Assyrian Empire, and it had emerged, and they were utterly crushing every single nation around them. And so Syria, led by King Rezin, and Israel, led by King Pekah, had formed an alliance against Assyria in order to protect themselves. And they thought, let's get Judah to join us as well. But King Ahaz of Judah has already been one step ahead of those two kings. He thought, why don't I sign a peace treaty with a terrifying Assyrian empire, and I'm going to be safe. But things were about to get complicated. The two kings, that is, of Syria and Israel decided that if they couldn't get Judah to join them, well, they'd attack Judah and then they'd force an alliance. The first move was King Rezin of Syria. He invaded Judah's port city of Elath and cut off all trade from the sea and thus he left Jerusalem isolated. Then Pekah, king of Israel, launched a general campaign against northern Judah and he slaughtered 120,000 Judeans in one day. And he captured hundreds more. And the Bible calls that, in 2 Chronicles 28, verse 9, he calls it a rage that reaches heaven. Well, that being done, 
The two kings then planned to surround Jerusalem and, and put it under siege, but Isaiah 7-1 tells us that they could not conquer the city, at least not yet. And then these two kings have a plan. Once they conquer Jerusalem, they're going to kill King Ahaz, and they're going to kill all the members of the royal family, and they're going to replace them with a puppet king, a man from Syria named the son of Tabeel. And that would mean that had these two kings succeeded, they would have ended the line of David, and they would have brought an end to the promise of the Messiah. That's the drama. The book of 2 Kings 16, 2-4 gives us historical background. It says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. You know, we can safely say that Ahaz had no interest in a Messiah. This man, although he was a direct descendant of King David and was in the genealogical line of the Messiah, was deeply and intensely evil. But now the man who had thought he had taken care of the future saw his world spiraling out of control. Isaiah said that he was like a leaf shaken in the wind. He didn't think he had the military strength to ward off these powers, and he was going to not just be defeated, but he and his entire family would be taken out of the city and slaughtered. And Isaiah came to him as Ahaz was inspecting the city's water conduit, preparing for a siege that was coming. And the prophet said, don't worry, it's not going to happen. Now, the prophet of righteousness would have such a hopeful word, that was shocking to the king. The king expected that when the prophet arrived, he would have said, this is what you deserve for abandoning the Lord. But instead, he promises him that the plot against him by Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, that's not going to happen. They're never going to defeat you, says the prophet. And that's where we pick up today. Isaiah is giving a surprised king a word of hope. But then Isaiah adds something to that. So we're going to read Isaiah 7, verse 9b. Isaiah tells the king, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And so Isaiah appeals to the king of Jerusalem. Now is the time to believe in God. But there's a problem, of course. This man has never believed in God. He's an, he's an idolater. He despises the faith of his fathers. How now, in a time of crisis, is he supposed to suddenly start believing that the God he has despised now becomes the object of his confidence? And so realizing how impossible it is, Isaiah has a word for the king. Remember here, the prophet is speaking on behalf of God. So I'm reading Isaiah 7, verses 10 and 11. Again, the Lord said to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. You know, ask for a difficult sign. Ask for the most difficult one you can. And you're going to get reason for faith. Well, what kind of sign is Ahaz going to ask for? Well, for example, Isaiah was involved in another sign. This one would happen years later when he was dealing with Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. In Hezekiah's time, the Assyrian Empire was threatening to destroy Jerusalem. And again, a sign was needed. And so Isaiah goes at the command of God and he meets with King Hezekiah. And here's what he says. I'm reading Isaiah 38, verses 6 to 8. I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord. 
that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz, turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial, the 10 steps by which it had declined. (laughs) That's pretty impressive. God says, you need to have faith. Let me help you. I'm going to move the sun backwards. How's that? That's as good as parting the Red Sea. If you want proof that God is going to be with you, God said, there's a sign. So that's what signs mean. They were supernatural occurrences that would demonstrate that God would keep his promises and that were intended to help even wicked people to believe. And that's what Isaiah is offering King Ahaz. And that's fascinating. And Ahaz responds with monumental hypocrisy. Look now at Isaiah 7, verse 12. It says, But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. (laughs) Suddenly, the wicked king is quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, from the law of God. It forbids putting God to the test. (laughs) Suddenly, the old pagan king actually can quote scripture. He amazingly has a biblical reason for not asking for a sign. And more than that, he's correcting the prophet Isaiah and he's telling him, you're not even being biblical. (laughs) It's really incredible. But why didn't Ahaz want a sign? I think the reason is pretty apparent. Ahaz has no intention of getting into a deal with the God of Israel. He hates God. And he's already making a treaty with the Assyrian Empire. Putting God into the equation is only going to complicate matters. Ahaz knows that faith in God demands exclusive faith in God. God will accept no competitors. Ahaz's hope is not in God. It's going to be in Assyria. He's going to take every last bit of wealth that his nation has. He's going to virtually bankrupt his entire economy. He's going to reduce his own people to poverty, and he's going to pay the king of Assyria to wipe out Syria and Israel, and he's going to hope that they're going to get there before the Syrians and the Israelites wipe him out. He's hoping he can survive. That's his plan. Isaiah is bothering him, but stop and consider what it means. What you hope in and what you believe in, that's going to define how you live your life. That's what's happening here. Truth in Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld provides regular, insightful interviews with Christian leaders into some of the most provocative and current issues of the Christian life. How would the Bible have us live, think, even respond to issues that ultimately define who we are as God's people? How should we act and respond to the world around us or live uniquely within the church? Join Dr. John Newfeld for these unique and intimate conversations that ultimately provide biblical insight for living as we strive to live as people of faith. Never miss an episode or check out past episodes by visiting and subscribing to our YouTube channel at Back to the Bible Canada. For more information, call us today at one 800 663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca and please consider offering a gift this month to support our critical year-end campaign call 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca Many of us make plans without either consulting the Bible without prayer without a determination to commit our ways to the Lord. And so rather than trusting in the Lord, 
we determine to trust in our own plans. We assume that we've looked into all the possible threats around us and we've done our level best to mitigate the risks. And so if things go well, well, knock on wood, we're gonna be all right. And all of this says that we've trusted in idols, in the gods that our own hands have made. Trust yourself, that's the counsel of our day. And in response, the Bible says, Proverbs 3 verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. Clearly, if you're going to do that, you're gonna need help. And that gets us back to the drama around Ahaz. He needs a reason to put his trust in the Lord, but he seems incapable of even asking for that. And so we come to Isaiah 7, verses 12 to 14. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, that is Isaiah said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you would weary my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Wow, what's that got to do with Christmas, the birth of Jesus? And why would Matthew, the apostle, say that this passage from Isaiah was fulfilled when Jesus was born? If the birth of Jesus was a sign for Ahaz, then how can something that happened over 700 years later, that is, the birth of Jesus in a manger in Bethlehem, how could that be a sign to King Ahaz? In fact, that's what the critics of Matthew have been pointing out. They say that Isaiah 7 has something to do with the events around 732 BC in Jerusalem, and it has nothing at all to do with Bethlehem and the birth of Jesus. And what's more, the critics point out that the term virgin, that's in verse 14, well, it doesn't refer to a virgin at all. It can just refer to a young woman or a maiden. And say the critics, this young woman giving birth probably refers to Ahaz's wife. You know, the baby she conceived was Hezekiah. He was the king who finally saved Judah from the Assyrians. That was the sign from God. So how do we respond? Well, first of all, we should notice that by the time that Isaiah met with Ahaz, Hezekiah had already been born. Indeed, he was probably around 10 years old by then. So this has nothing to do with Hezekiah. Secondly, if Isaiah was only referring to a young woman of the age of marriage and not a virgin, as the critics say, then how is that a sign? I get the sundial going backward. I get the Red Sea parting. I get the walls of Jericho falling down flat without anyone touching them. But a young woman giving birth? Young women get pregnant and give birth every day by the hundreds of thousands. That's no sign. So if a sign is a clear supernatural proof that God is going to do what he has promised, then clearly the critics have got it all wrong. They haven't understood this passage at all. And there's more. The Hebrew word for virgin, it's Alma, and it's what's questioned here. Now, when the Jewish scholars some 300 years before Christ translated the Old Testament into the Greek language, those scholars translated the word Alma as virgin. Those old Jewish scholars who knew their own language a lot better than modern European liberal critics do. Those ancient Jewish scholars were completely convinced Isaiah was talking about a virgin. A virgin will conceive, that's the sign. But still, some might object. How can Jesus being born in Bethlehem more than 700 years later be assigned to Ahaz? An answer, it isn't. See, I want you to go back to verse 14 and you'll find the word you. 
The problem with the word you in English is that it can be both singular and plural. I can speak to an individual, I can call him you, or I can speak to a large group of people and call them you or y'all as the Americans do, but not in Hebrew. There the grammar is very clear. You can always tell the difference between singular and plural. And when we read verse 14, it would seem at first glance in English that the you must refer to Ahaz. Ahaz says, Isaiah, God is going to give you a sign. But that's not what this passage says. The word you is plural. It means the Lord will give you all, all of you a sign. So our question is, who is the all of you? And here's what's happened. Since according to verse 13, God has become weary of Ahaz's unbelief, he now refuses to give Ahaz a sign. The door to him is closed, but God will give a very large group of people a sign, the very sign that Ahaz refused. That group would include all the house of David, but it might include all of Judah, or it could include what Matthew saw. It could include a group much larger than that. God was going to, at some time in the future, give a very large group of people a sign that Ahaz wouldn't see. When Ahaz fell into unbelief, God would open a door to others who also face a crisis of their own. But when will the sign come? And who is the son who will be born of a virgin? Isaiah tells us, His name will be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. This son that will be born of a virgin will signal that God himself has come to live among men. Unless we miss that, two chapters later, Isaiah is going to return to that theme. We're going to get to Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, where Isaiah will promise that to us, a child will be born, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And then another two chapters later in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah will declare that this son will come from the stump of Jesse. That is, Isaiah will promise that the son will be born of a virgin who will be David's descendant. In essence, here's what Isaiah is telling Ahaz. God will spare your kingdom for the sake of the promise he made to David. But you, you're not going to receive a sign from God, and you will not be given over to faith in God. You will end your days as a pagan king. But in the future, when God sends his long-expected Messiah, the sign that is a gift of God is this. He will be born of a virgin. Ahaz would never see it. God would condemn him and leave the sign for others to see. Remember, the first promise of this enormous sign happened in evil days. So here's what the sign of a virgin was intended to give anyone who pays attention. The virgin birth of Jesus should give us enormous confidence in the promise of God. God has said that he will be with us, and now we know that the promise is true. And that's precisely what Christmas is. To a world on the brink of disaster, God gave us a sign that if we trust in him and not in our own resources, he's going to save us from our sins. Let's go back to Ahaz and the two surrounding armies around his city waiting to kill him. Isaiah's not done with him. Pointing now at his little boy, remember Shear Jeshuv? He says of him, and I'm reading here Isaiah 7, 15 to 16, he, Shear Jeshuv, shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. That is, for you, Ahaz, 
you won't get a sign, but so that you know that the defeat of the two kings you fear didn't come from your hands. Let me tell you this, before my boy reaches the age of maturity, the kings you fear will be no more. But since Ahaz was such a wicked man, God wants to let him know that that's not going to be good news for him. Look at verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In other words, these two kings that you presently fear, well, they're not going to be disaster for you, but judgment is coming to you. You know, 700 years later, as a Levite scholar named Matthew was poring over this text in Isaiah, he came to a realization. The realization that he came to was that Ahaz in his day did not see the sign that God would have given him. In the middle of his own crises and failures and sins, he gained no faith and eventually he was rejected. If only he had had the sign. But Matthew, who's studying this passage, also realizes that now in his day, the sign had arrived. Up till then, no virgin had ever conceived, but now it had happened. Now in Bethlehem, a woman named Mary, a direct descendant of King David and a direct descendant of King Ahaz, this woman was visited by an angel, and she who was a virgin became pregnant. And so what does Christmas really mean for us now? At the very least, it means that facing difficult times is no reason to despair. You see, when your spouse leaves or you lose your job and when your most trusted friends turn against you, when the doctor pronounces you terminal, don't be shaken as trees are shaken in the wind. If you look at the sign that God has given you, you have reason to believe. That's what Christmas is all about. John, perhaps one of the things we see here is a verse that's so well known. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is a sign, and this sign is so critical for us, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. You know, I, I mentioned this whole idea that God has given great signs in the past, you know, the parting of the Red Sea and, you know, the walls of Jericho falling flat. I'm going to argue that none of those even holds a candle to this one. I mean, for all the liberal scholars that say, yeah, but virgins can't give birth, my response is, yeah, that is true, but the Red Sea can't be parted in the middle either, and a world can't be created out of nothing. But when God does something great, he gives a great sign. A virgin conceiving is the sign from God. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. end, we can't help but reflect on the partnership of so many across Canada that make this Bible teaching ministry possible, particularly the important role our monthly partners play in providing consistent, reliable, foundational support for every resource Back to the Bible Canada has to offer. Recently, Jane wrote these words of encouragement. As monthly partners, my husband and I count it a great privilege to financially support Back to the Bible Canada. It's just a small but important way for us to partner in the gospel. Through listening to Dr. John's podcasts, we are challenged to know the Bible and prioritize our relationship with our Savior. Jane, your commitment to Bible teaching means so much. 
Perhaps as we look to a new year, others might join with Jane as a partner in the gospel by becoming a monthly partner. All you need to do is call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.